This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides taking it. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And joining me, well, this is actually a, like, I t- I've talked about some real proper treats um, of folks that I really wanted to get on the show. Um, this man has probably heard me talk more about heat or almost as much about heat as any human being that's alive. Now, 76 hours essentially of episodes listening in. He is Dr. Hamish Ford. He is a senior lecturer in film, media, and cultural studies at the University of Newcastle. He's the head of um, uh, the uh, discipline, and he's the program convener for the Bachelor of Arts program there. He is my university uh, mentor, uh, honors coordinator, um, and uh, and teacher. And he was uh, uh, instrumental in my thesis, which is titled "What Makes a Man." Hamish Ford, welcome to One Heat Minute. Thanks so much, Blake, and thanks very much for having me on. It sounds like a great project. And so as um, we're going to dive into a lot of things. We're going to start when you kick off the minute. Hamish and I are going to watch together, and then we can come back. But we've talked for hours almost, I feel like, um, on Michael Mann, and, uh, and, and, and Hamish sort of took me down the rabbit hole um, on authorship and masculinity, and particularly in influences of... Uh, European cinema on Michael Mann. So I'm really looking forward to chatting to him about this. But let's just dive into the minute to watch it. We've got the lovely John Voight as Nate, um, who Kyle Turner lovingly said was giving uh, Robert De Niro's Neil McCauley a maternal advice discussion about why um, he shouldn't, um, he should be sort of getting out of this job. And, and this is De Niro saying, no, he's going to keep going. So here we go. We're going to watch the minute together. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Makes you some kind of star. You do this shot, you do that shot. Look how sharp this guy is to figure that. Funny as a heart attack, man. Three marriages, what the fuck do you think that means? He likes staying home? He's the man is one of those guys out there, prowling around all night dedicated. With this guy, this much heat you should pass. worth a stretch this guy can hit and miss you can't miss once you sure I'm sure let's go to the garage John Voigt Robert De Niro, John Voight actually playing a cipher for a famous um, American crime author called Edward Bunker, aka Eddie Bunker, who was a a, a famous sort of con man and a and a, a setup and sort of had to. He wrote this book called um, No Beast So Fierce, which is a really famous okay. book. Um, and so at the time, uh, I told a little ditty on the last podcast, but I'll tell you now, fresh, that um, at the time. 
Michael Mann wanted John Voigt to sort of play Eddie Bunker. He's like, you're playing this guy. And at the time, John Voigt was like, but, but why don't you just get that guy to play that guy? Like, why are you getting me to play that guy? You know, any number of up-and-coming actors could play this role. And he said, oh, just because I want to work with you. And this is a nice excuse for us to work together. This is a really intense, cool little scene. It's got a great little relationship dynamic. Mm. What, what, what are the things that you see straight up? Uh, yeah, so obviously, as so often in Man, we've got two men talking. Uh, <laughs> and this is at least half of what Michael Mann is about, right? Two men talking. Uh, because these are complex kind of bromance films, ultimately. <laughs> Yeah, so they're ultimately bromance films, at least on, on one level, um, and about, you know, often conflicted relationships between men. In this case, it seems to be a fairly simple, benign relationship, really a, almost like a father-son or older brother-younger brother relationship. Um, and so there's a kind of tenderness there, uh, which yeah. I think you do get quite often in men at, at moments. So... There's that, and there's obviously the point, of course, that this is an absolutely crucial moment for the plot uh, where um, Neil decides to basically make a bad decision. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, this is the beginning of his downfall. Uh, we're told he's a man of steel, and, of course, he's been softened up by a woman, God forbid. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, always a bit of a problem in this world. Uh, if only these guys were gay, the whole <laughs> would happen, right? Uh, I'm being facetious. That would still happen, of course, because, you know, the problem is, uh, you know, opening up your emotions in general. Um, but nonetheless, he's decided to, you know, not heed the warnings of his uh sort of father figure, older brother figure, and to go ahead with the plan. So important on, on plot. Um, plot's not really my thing, though. So what's more interesting here to me is, well, as we were speaking before we press record, so many filmmakers, particularly in Hollywood, are so boring when it comes to shooting conversation scenes. 100%. You know, um, and what's interesting here is we've got a, a car conversation scene, which, which tends to be even more tricky in terms of how to stage it. And man has chosen this wonderful set of oppositions whereby the shots uh, that show uh, Void talking and then De Niro in the foreground have a very manish, just a bit of abstract, blurry city lights business in the background. Yes. Um, and then when you cut back to De Niro uh, and Void in the foreground, we have what appears to be sheer black yes. behind um, De Niro's face. So this is like a great little way, I think, of, of man you know, sort of cutting between two uh, very theatrical, sort of non-realist, you know, bits of space, if you like. They're in a void, seemingly, when they talk, when we see De Niro. And then when we see Voigt, uh, when he's speaking, we've got this kind of just, what the hell is it? You yeah. know, the <laughs> shapes and, and lights. And so to me, this really raises something that's really core to these films, which is that they're set in a particular context, a very masculine context and world, which in many ways is very old-fashioned. Yes. But at the same time, and this, of course, is not really a contradiction, but it's an extra layer, these guys are not real. You know, these guys are at least the heroes of the films and the, and the key antagonists are, they're, in, in a weird way, they're superheroes. You know, they're... They're like at an adult version of superheroes, yes. which is why, of course, or partly why, you know, uh, many people, but um, one of man's core fan base, I think, are sort of middle-aged and older men who still like <laughs> um, heroic men on some level. Yes. Right? And these guys are heroic, let's face it. 
you know, um, they're oozing power and um, charisma and and also, of course, screwed up business as well. I mean, you know, these, these are also obviously part of the incredibly long tale of masculine crisis in the American cinema. <laughs> yes. Um, but I love the way these... That's, still, guys- that's going on nine years after you and I were t- still talking about it. We were still talking about new, new Hollywood masculinity and crisis and that echoing through and a few, you know, um, Susan Jeffords called it the remasculinization of America, some fantastic mm-hmm. stuff. She wrote on, you know, um, you know the, the Reagan era denying the Vietnam War and then it sort of comes crashing down in the early yeah. 90s again um but it's this huge arc that just does it just doesn't seem to end like the hollywood on one side you've got hollywood amnesia in the form of superheroes and it just it's just not going away it's like it's still manifesting itself in really great portrayals no that's right i mean really it's been going on since the 60s yes um in the american cinema there was a blip there was a long blip between well that started with jaws and star wars and then really kicked off in the early 80s so we had that sort of 80s period that was on the surface not about masculine crisis it was about masculine affirmation but if we read those films of course you know the terminator films and the rambo films and everything they're totally screwed up films about how neurotic american masculinity is on this mythic level yes and yeah the the susan jefford stuff which i think you introduced me to originally actually um which i still talk about occasionally in first year lectures because it's such an interesting thesis yes um You know, that was really a response to the, the, the failures of the 70s and, you know, losing the war in Vietnam and, and um, Watergate and everything. So, you know, it was a neurotic response to this incredibly, um, this decade of failure, basically, yes. in terms of the United States' view of itself and, of course, its hyper-masculine self, self kind of image. Um, so this is where man, as, we, as we've spoken about it many times in the past, he's so... Um, he is a creature of the 70s in so many ways. But this is partly what makes the film so weird when you look at them in the 90s and subsequently because they're shot, they're shot in a way which, you know, technically looks like contemporary Hollywood. But um, they're featuring a, sort of, a certain version of, of men which is tied to the 70s but is somehow more mythic and heroic than probably a film from the early 70s would have been in some ways, I think. Yes, uh, so he's giving you a little bit of both, you know, um, but he's sustaining the dream to some extent. What I would say, though, finally, sorry about that, is that, well, two things really. This never-ending arc of masculine crisis often I find really tedious and kind of like, <laughs> can we be done with this? Um, and man, on the one hand, is at the centre of that. His work is like almost like what part of the central canon of that. But as so often, the central part of the canon is interesting. Yes, it's just that there's way too much of it, and most of it is uninteresting. But man makes it interesting, even if you don't relate necessarily to the affection, if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think what you po- you made the great point talking about what it's like a brother relationship, and there's that tenderness in the way that the scene is staged, is because there's there's a few other sequences now that I've scrutinised it as part of the show, and folks who are listening have been a part of it too. Is there are signs well early, like it happens right at that, you know, sort of 73rd minute. As soon as he hears that the cops are on his tail, there are signs oh. that he should turn back. Like he shouldn't do this. He has a, he holds court with his crew and, you know, about 77th minute and says, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do this. And he's the one who's saying we shouldn't do it. 
And what mm. I love here about the contrast with the light and the dark and the void is that it, the void is even re- expressed in his performance because he never makes eye contact with void. That's what I keep get being struck by in this scene. He's like, he's pouring over these documents and yes, it makes sense. But at the same time, mm. you know those people in your life from a sort of uh, an emotionally real place uh, you yeah. know, because they sort of are both these hyper um, archetypes at the same time, these really specific people, um, he won't look at him. He will not look yeah. at the person who's going to give him the advice that actually says yeah. you need to turn back. And I love that about the dramatic truth of this scene at the same time as you, you know that this is like, if he's not going to listen to Nate, John Voight's character yeah. here, He's yeah. never going to listen to anyone. And it's like it's like that predetermination, the fatalism of the movie comes back. It's like yeah, this yeah, guy yeah. was always going to go until his death. And we already know it now in the in the 80, what is the 84th minute? I'm sorry, the 84th minute yeah. that we're discussing right now. No, look, that's so true. I mean, um, that's a great point. The tenderness, I should have added, is, is largely implicit. Yes. And it comes more from Voight, actually. Yes. Uh, because he, you know, I mean, Nate is this kind of like cold guy, basically, who's only just starting to develop some kind of emotional life, seemingly. And I think on the commentary track, man refers to him as a void, like his actual character, yes. or as uh, as a guy basically just with a void where there should be some kind of, you know, softer material. Um, and yeah, so he can't quite handle maybe. I mean, you know, if you want to be a bit sort of touchy-feely about it just like in this scene he can't look at Voight because Voight is showing too much concern and tenderness for him uh of course while also not wanting to unmask his own you know operation yes, but still yeah. there there is a kind of there is a, a certain yeah in Voight's performance and that final phone call too that they have later in the film yes where you just detect a sense of like paternal or fraternal care yes from him but he doesn't get much back from De Niro, so I think that's that's really that's really true what you say. You know, De Niro, even in that last phone 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 call, he doesn't really say, "Oh, thanks for all your help" or anything. No, you know? <laughs> no, no. I, it's that's my favorite. I always tell my friends, I wish I could be like Vincent Hanna or like Neil McCauley on phone calls because, like, Al Pacino picks up the phone and he doesn't even talk. He just like yeah. he just yeah. holds the phone to his ear. People go, you know, couldn't trace that. Uh, explosive incident because that's wonderful and just hangs the phone up like to to have that ongoing relationship i know like we're both normal people so you can't have that with your wife or with your friends you know you can't do that um but i just i love those little touches they always sort of make me chuckle in amongst the character (laughs) i wanted to pick up something else you said as well about this kind of fatalism because what really struck me when you when you were saying that i mean not only is it true but this scene because this scene is so important in him starting this 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 you know, the second half of the film, roughly, right, where, I mean, the scene is very modest on one level. I mean, there's lots of other scenes in the film that are much more grandiose and kind of, you know, set-piece oriented. This is not a set-piece scene at all. It's a scene you could easily overlook. And, in fact, probably if I had just watched the film without seeing which minute you had asked us to discuss, I, I would have probably, like, passed it over. Yes. But because, first of all, I went to that scene, looked at it first, and then, then watched the whole film. I sort of started to watch it and just kept watching. Um, I realized that this is, yeah, this is a pivotal scene because he's deciding to go down this path. And the path that he's going down is not only fatalistic, it's a kind of, it's a kind of theme in man, which is amor food, like crazy love. Yes. Yeah. And it's not so simple as to say it's crazy love for someone. 
No. So it's, it's not the, the more romantic version where you fall in love with a woman or a man or whatever and that just makes you go crazy. Although that is there in the background because we're led to believe that his growing love for Edie is unhinging him, right? Yes. Or making him lose his machine-like discipline. <laughs> yes. um, but I don't even think it's just that. I think it's it's more that sort of thing where if you put one little tiny thing out of place, his judgment is clouded. And a certain crazed uh, passion takes hold. And I think um, that's where he starts to become more like Pacino's character as well. Because initially you're going, okay, here's supposedly a story about a cop and a criminal and how they're similar. And yet for the first half of the film, you're going, how are they similar? Yeah. (laughs) They're they're, they're totally different. Pacino's a kind of almost a hothead. Yes. He he has rows with his wife and he throws TVs and (laughs) all that kind of stuff. And he's very emotional, right? He's a very emotional guy. And he he, he almost like overdoes certain scenes with these like almost comedic turns. And and, uh, meanwhile, De Niro never raises his voice. No. Um, So you're thinking how these two guys are the same. But at this moment in the film... De Niro is starting to become more like Pacino because Pacino is obsessive. He's an obsessive character, isn't he? Yes. They're both both obsessive in their own way, but he's outwardly obsessive. Like he he can't hide it. There's none of this, there's none of this artifice of control. He's very impulse orientated. So all that like histrionics is part of his whole persona. Like that's how he gets obsessed. And it's so bipolar. Like he goes up and then he loses the energy to function as a normal human being because he has to go so high in all that other parts of the film. That's right, that's right. And I was thinking about, um, again, uh, something that man was saying on the the commentary on the Blu-ray and DVD, um, that, oh, yeah, that's right. He was he was talking about different kinds of cops. And he said certain guys, cops and detectives, their position is that you have to be removed. You can never get emotionally involved in what's happening. Yes. Because otherwise, otherwise you can't cope with it and also you're not going to be helpful to the, the people. And this is, he was talking about this over the scene where the young prostitute's body is discovered. Yes. And the, and the mother rushes in and, and he gives her a hug. And so he's talking about that notion that there are other cops that are the complete opposite, that sort of embrace their humanity and, and fully emotionally engage in the horror of what they do and, and of what they see. And I think he described it that these are like a, a more elevated level of cop, you yes. know, and that Pacino's character, Hannah, is, is that kind of guy. So in man's eyes, although he seems a little bit crazy, Pacino's character is actually the best kind of cop. Yes. And, and again, this gets back to the notion, I think, he's almost like a superhero. Yes. You know, he's dysfunctional and, and he can't hold down a, his personal life is all screwed up and stuff, but there's something unbelievably heroic about him. Yes. You know, so I think this moment where we don't see, this scene in the film, of course, where we don't see Pacino, he's still there, obviously, because we see a picture of him. Yeah. But also... And we see a picture of him happy. What's even yeah. funny is it's, it's the point where he realizes that he's been seen and he's sort of happy, smiling, like, oh, ah, yeah. here we yeah. are. It's even funnier yeah. that we're talking about it. Well, that's right. That's right. And so he's invoked. Neil learns about him for the first time. And it's like the, the love story begins here. Yes. But it's, it's, it's not just a question of bromance love, although certainly that's one way you can talk about it. And, you know, I'm sure there are great queer readings of this film available, you yes. know. Um, I'm sure you've talked about this on 
quotes. Um, but I'm not even just referring to that. I mean more this shared amour food, this crazy love, this this passion that actually makes you do things you shouldn't really do if you thought about them in a more rational way. And, you know, John Voigt is the voice of reason in this and and Neil is choosing to, to not follow that path. Um, so I think those little pictures of Hannah are those little intercuts, which on one level are very conventional. They're still really important because they're like shards of this initial frisson, you know. Yeah. This, <laughs> yeah. like, the, and, and, of course, he says, you know, and it's quite funny, he says, Hannah likes you. He likes you. You do this you good. Know? You do this sharp. You do that sharp. Yeah, it's like teenagers. It's like, you know, it's like <laughs> this guy really likes you. It's like, and, and he's almost, there's a little tiny, tiny glimmer on Neil's face of pleasure at, at that. Yeah, satisfaction. It's, it's yeah. what's so strange. And you just talked about that um, that crazy love, and it was something that we, we discussed a lot, you know, mm. back when I was studying, was that man... Man archetypal characters, and particularly his protagonists, often have this lure towards the sublime. And it was some it was a philosophical sort of tangent that you sort of helped coach me down. But I see it it's so pronounced when Neil does that amazing um uh look out to the ocean where he's framed with his gun on the glass yeah. table. Yeah. It's f- yeah. famously copied from an Alex Colville painting um, mm. uh, where, you know, sort of he's, he's standing there and has his gun on the draft table. But here it's kind of a it's, – it's almost like a morsel of that because in, especially in the way that it's staged because he's just against the black void, not mm. looking to reason, not looking mm. to reason, listening, hearing things, but he's not purely hearing, you know, uh, the guidance to get out of this. He's like, no nope. – Mm. This is where I am. His mm. only satisfaction is in the danger. Like yeah. that's where it is. Yeah. That smile, that glimmer. It's like we've mm. just got this potential. You know, yeah. this is this is you know. There's that weird thing. It's been pronounced in other movies and you know in different scripts a million times over. It's like oh, this is where the fun begins, right? This is where yeah. the actual fun is. The, we know we we both know we exist, and now mm. here we go. And that's like that choice. It's really interesting in this in this particular scene. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like this in this genre, whatever genre it is, or or particular authorial take on a genre. It's this, uh, and there's two other scenes that sort of do it as well. That it's like the equivalent of the meet cute moment in a rom com. <laughs> yes, you know. So <laughs> the other two scenes I'm thinking of is when, first of all, when Pacino's character sees Neil for the first time, mm. and he says, "Who's the loner guy?" Who's the loner? Yeah. Yeah. And the other guys are all kind of normal, you know, slightly cliched-looking guys. They're obviously criminals in one way or another. But he's this super smooth guy in a nice jacket, no connections, no wife and kids or anything like that. Who's the and liner? Pacino's like, oh, this guy interests me. You know, it's yes. almost like, hmm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me more. Um, and then the other scene I'm thinking of is when, I mean, he gets really excited about this, when he works out that they're being filmed, yes. that, that they've been made, right? Yeah. He goes, we, the cops, have been made. Um, and he, I mean, he almost has an orgasm when he finds that <laughs> out. He's like jumping up and down, almost like a lunatic, you know. <laughs> and meanwhile, as if that wasn't kind of all exciting enough, then you have those shots of Neil doing the filming. Yeah. And we're almost in Hitchcock territory in terms of like, voyeurism and pleasure of the gaze kind of stuff. But here we've got, of course, he, men looking at men. He couldn't have a more Jimmy Stewart phallic lens also from the top of that 
from, yeah, the, top, yeah, from the top exactly. of that tower. And he takes exactly. he takes a deep satisfaction. It's just one of those moments where you smile as well. It's like the whole, the pure voyeurism of whatever this thriller crime genre, whatever you want to call it. It's like, we're yeah. all, we all know these guys are going to meet and it's about, mm. it's, it's Michael Mann having a really fun game of how to, you know, keep us on the edge yeah. of our seat for this relationship. But it is this relationship that people are interested in seeing. They want to see these two collide. <clears throat> That's right. That's right. And I mean, it's sort of, you know, I guess what makes it um, also so affecting and sort of tra- tragic, obviously, is that um, this is not a conventional love story or, or a, you know, gay film or whatever. This is about two guys who, when they meet, one of them will die. So yeah. it's yeah. less about eros. It's less about desire through, you know, sex and, and love or whatever than a, than a terrible kind of bond, you know, a bond yeah. which can only lead to death. And there's just, there's such a horrible sense of kind of, yeah, fatalistic death drive stuff in this film, you yes. know, as, as, as with this whole tradition of filmmaking. But, I mean, man, man just kind of nails it. There's nothing particularly commanding in these films about everyday life. You know, what's commanding is lure towards death. Yes, and, you know. and 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 de- death is always a consequence of, um, you know, whatever their purpose is. I want to I want to go away from. I think we've talked on the show, and a lot of people talk about man in professional professionalism, but I really like now just sort of reframing it a touch and say, look, it's no, it's about purpose because people mm. find purpose in their profession. It's not just the doing; mm. it's what the it's what the doing means to them. What it yeah, gives yeah, them, yeah. and I, and I feel like that's that's what's sort of getting elevated at this point. It's like what Neil could have been anything. He's hyper intelligent, you know, hyper intelligent, studious, you know, Spartan, willing to sacrifice things. Yeah, yeah. And and it's like this lure to this other stuff. You know, there's all. It, it just so happens that the environment or whatever that spat him into the criminal justice system in America, that then reprogrammed him with all the skills that he needed to be an efficient and effective criminal to not go back into jail. Like that mm. harnessed all of that stuff. And there's even flavors, you know, that we've we've talked about earlier in the show that he has a Marine Corps tattoo. Mm. So he's been in the army. So there's mm. also that sort of that that other thing. It's like that discipline didn't work for him. What is yeah. the purpose of this criminality that's making it's that's driving him? That's what's so fascinating about Neil. I think that's what makes people just love the mystique, I guess, because you're just so what it's not he's not doing it for the house on the ocean. He, no, no. And I mean you can't even be bothered, you know, buying a decent kind of bit of furniture. No. Um, no. Right? um he's dissatisfied. I mean it sort of gets back in some ways to what you were saying before, I think, about the sublime because we will address the last shot in that, that sequence in relation to that. It's very important. But but before we get to that, uh, all of what you're talking about, I think, is very much connected to this especially American mm. um, action cinema version of the sublime, which is, which is ultimately tied up with death. And it's what I find interesting is that part of the reason for that is that life, everyday life, appears to be so either dysfunctional or dissatisfying in these films. Yes. So, you know, one of the things about American cinema I find that it's most generic is often that the reason why it emphasises sort of heroic gestures or or generic, um, uh, you know, set pieces or whatever is because everyday, everyday life is so horrible and bland. 
you know. (laughs) And so I've been thinking about, say, the slow burn tragedy of something like Better Call Saul at the moment. Yes, yes. You've got this incredible sort of very slow critique of how tedious everyday life is in the United States in this case. Yes. You know, at, at, at all levels of the system, including at a kind of upper middle class, successful professional level, there's no beauty. There's no, there's no mystery to it. Yes. You know? And so what we get, so I think part of what Jimmy's doing on that show is not just kind of failing through having been rejected by the more bourgeois elements of his society as embodied by his brother, but he's kind of finding them boring. Like he's, there's something that's driving him to, well, what I think ultimately is the kind of the noir universe. So not just because of lighting regimes and whatever, I mean more the dissatisfaction with what apparently is possible in the everyday world leads you to this more, this amorphous, this crazy passion to embrace something else. Yes. whether it's a person or a lifestyle or, or a criminal project or whatever. And so this is where I think he is also deeply connected to those traditions of noir that are actually in some ways about critiquing American life and society and kind of options. Yes. You know? um, so it often gets channeled, therefore, um, into this kind of violence, into this kind of death drive. Yes. There appears to be no other source of, of um, the sublime. Yeah. And and what it makes so there's in heat there's what sometimes people might call like fleeting scenes now really leap out to me when you think of it when you sort of start framing it with that noir drive towards that crazy lovers because man is saying things about what is sort of systemically wrong with American society in like sort of you know in a very subtle way sort of the, just the entire sort of drive of the film. But then he has these like overt flashes. Like you look at Dennis, Dennis Haysbert's character, Don Breeden, like he comes out of jail and mm. the system is geared to drive him back to crime. Mm. Like to, you know, to, to, to allow someone to walk into a coffee, you know, to walk into your place of employment and give you an option that, mm. that I've actually done the recording for on this show. And I know it's at the 110th minute because I've already, it's already recorded in the can and it's within 30 seconds, a crook who you knew from jail can give you an option. And that seems better yeah, than yeah. living your life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And because, then your freedom. Because what's on offer is banal, everyday, crap wages, meaningless work, Yes. Franchise, whatever, diner, flipping burgers. You know, this is it. This is either this or crime. Yes. It's amazing. Everyone doesn't choose crime. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's so much sexier. <laughs> it's so much sexier. That's right. Um, but getting back to that death drive too, I mean, of course, yeah, these films are thoroughly American in all kinds of fascinating ways, but there's also like an almost, mm, there's an almost, there's an obsession with death in a film like this. I think that also gets back to, more international kind of um, modes or, or traditions, so particularly, you know, the, the German cult of death. Yes. You know, that we see in, in traditions of poetry and literature and filmmaking and, of course, tragically politics as well. I mean, yeah. people have played endlessly on, you know, one of the many ingredients of the, of the National Socialists' uh, success, if you like, was a certain kind of embrace of death. Yes. Uh, that it was it, – it's part of the culture in a way. And I think in a different way, that's true of the United States as well. You know, I mean, here's a country that still uh, puts people to death on a regular basis, yep. depending on the state. 
Um, the United States could not join, theoretically, could not join the European Union, not that it would ever want to, of course, but it can't even agree with its main uh, Western counterpart on the number one criteria uh, that you have to agree to if you want to join the EU, which is that your government will not kill you. The state cannot kill people. <laughs> you know? So when people talk about the West as if it's got some shared values, it's kind of like, well, what values? <laughs> yes. Because according to the EU, that's the number one most important thing. You know, in Europe, your government cannot kill you. In the US, that's not the case. No. So we have this institutionalization of death in the United States, which is increasingly out of step with the rest of the developed world. We have the cult of death, of course, of their military. Um, you said Neil had a, um, a tat, a military tat, right? Military tat, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's that whole, to my mind, still unresolved, uh, you know, bloodbath, massacre, whatever you want to call it, um, Holocaust, really, that was Vietnam. I mean, up to five and six million people in Indochina were killed. Um, that's, you know, we still haven't even really dealt with that, I don't think, that no. our number one friend and ally did that, and we were part of it. Yes. So all that stuff, it's a kind of, it's almost a worship of death that is just throughout the culture. And I think these films are partly a product of it, but they also... Of course, because it's so personalised in these big heroic masculine characters, we have to confront it not in a political way, because man is not a political filmmaker, I think. Yes. But in a way that's sort of subtle and, you know, all this stuff is like bubbling away beneath the surface. You know, that, that's how I see it. Yeah, that, that's the texture. He, he's never felt, man doesn't feel like he makes, or he's so authentic in his portrayal, but I think at the same time, he does, he's not. Um, that's where he's much more of a, like a European style filmmaker is that he's he's not he's not hitting you with a bludgeon. That's a yeah. more seventies style. It's a little bit under the surface. It's all in the it's all in the subtext of what's happening in the film and when things you know do do sort of emerge. It's it's all in the authenticity of the moment. So that Donald Breeden scene, you know, mm. you, you need to know about. You need to get the context so it's he's like he retrofit the character like he needs to get the context of how bad this guy's life is and what the um the frustrations of the system are and where he would get to in order to be able to reapproach it to come back and say hey mm. this is a guy who in 30 seconds can give up his entire life yeah yeah and and it's, so for him that's i think how he's able to approach some of these more i guess politically overt conversations, but it's not in his filmmaking because it, he has to first retrofit it. Oh, look, I, I agree. I mean, one of the many myths about 1970s American cinema, I mean, it's a very over-mythologized decade. Yes. One of the myths, I think, uh, that that generation has spread partly about itself, I, I would add, <laughs> yes. um, is that this was some wonderful radical decade. No. Um, and that's largely a lie. You know, I mean, you look at those films, you look at uh, the, the big films, you look at the small films from the early 70s, lots of interesting films and some great films in there, but very few that I would call radical politically or in any other way. Yes. Um, they're politically all over the place and often troubling as well. Yes. The stuff with gender is, is you know, in some ways, I mean, people criticise man for being, you know, disinterested in women and, and stuff, and that's probably true to, 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 to a degree. But the 70s stuff is often worse. I mean, the treatment of women in those 70s films is, is often very shoddy. Yes. <laughs> and the men get away with murder um, oftentimes, you know. Yeah. Now, 
in a way, I'm criticising those films, but also what I'm saying is that those films and men um, are preferable, in my view, to what I call the liberal Hollywood model. Yes. Which is the sort of the, we're going to tell you, we're going to give you a nice version of history and we're going to make some very small critical comments about, you know, we're going to make a film about the CIA and talk about a couple of bad eggs or you know, we're going to talk about Vietnam and say, well, we had good intentions, but things went a bit wrong. This kind of milk toast, very small, <laughs> yes. small scale critique, which is like increasingly I would rather either no critique or overtly right-wing films that at least we can talk about the neuroses of. Yes. No. So, for example, I would say that something like Green Berets, which is obviously a hilarious film at many levels, is in a weird way a more honest film about what the United States told itself about Vietnam than all those liberal Hollywood films yes. that lied to us completely. Um, so I think man's, man's, if you like, apolitical or, uh, yes, he's the fact that he's not a liberal Hollywood guy, I'm not talking about his personal views, I'm yeah. talking about what the films seem to be saying is part of their fascination and part of what makes them rich. I, I would agree with you. Yeah. yeah, and I think um, I I like um, I think some of the the great films at that time they it's like a comedic term. You just sort of they're throwaways. Like the whole context is a throwaway. They're just throwing away and they're hitting you, hitting you, hitting you. It's not, not very overt, not very overt in just anything in the politics with um, right, a man. Right. And some, some of the best films of that time, you know, you, you look at the contrast of like all the president's men versus mm. network. Like mm. network is the bludgeoning. Yeah. You know, <laughs> network is the, is, is the vastly more radical one. Yeah. Whereas yeah. all the president's men, um, all the president's men and some echoes and like the Godfather, there's a great line in the Godfather that Mark, you know, that Pacino actually says where he's like, you know, my father's just like any, you know, any, uh, powerful man, like a Senator or a governor and, you know, um, Diane Keaton's fa um, K she says, um, she's like, oh, but senators don't kill people, Michael. And he's like, who's being naive now, K? Like yeah, that's yeah. like that, that that that's like the there's these little morsels in some of those mainstream ones that are kind of semi radical and then you you do yeah. have to take there's those odd ones that come out in like that period of cinema like a network which almost then gets swallowed by the entire genre or the entire sort of era because there's just all this other blockbuster stuff and it's only now yeah. you sort of go back and go wow that was actually radical you know that was actually radical and really radical in in, a, in, a, in an American context. Network is a funny one. I remember us talking about this um, a long time ago. It's um, it's making some good commentary, obviously, in relation to TV, but also, you know, it even kind of brings in radical politics as a bit of a subplot. That's all kind of interesting stuff. But it really troubles me in that film the way that, um, the, you know, the problems of commercial television at that time are so gendered, you yes. know. So, so Faye Dunaway is kind of... Uh, it's almost, I don't know, there's almost something misogynist about the way that she's kind of tagged with this dumbed-down culture. Yes. And these old 60-something guys are somehow the good, grand old men of what television should have been and what news media should be. Until they go into Alzheimer's rages and exactly. uh, start exactly. screaming exactly. at the sky. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's interesting, you know, I mean, before we, we get back to, to Heath for a minute, you know, like people like Robert Altman, you know, when you read a lot of work on him as I did a few years ago and I, I, I wrote a couple of really long pieces on, on his 70s films and I found that a lot of the writing on Altman in a way misrepresents those films because it suggests that they're these kind of liberal, 
even at times of radical essays on American society um, in a very anthropological kind of way almost. And, and when I watched them, I was quite relieved that they weren't that, actually. Yes. No, they uh, There was a level of ambiguity there of slipperiness, which was much more interesting than just making, yeah, boring kind of liberal comments on how we should all be nicer to each other or, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, there is an interesting politics to his cinema, but I don't think it's just that. No. Um, uh, so it's funny, though, isn't it, when you compare Altman to someone like Mann, because Altman's men are, well, he's interested in men, but he's not interested really in heroic men. No. Like, the closest we could get would be, um, I don't know, in a way, something like, well, the genre things, like um, The Long Goodbye, obviously. Yeah. Although there's a lot of joking around there. But even something like um, California Split, there's something, I mean, that's his big bromance film. Yes. Um, and there's something almost in a very pathetic way, ultimately, superhero-ish about those guys, I think, um, where th that, is, that is a kind of love story, but a really sad one. And again, about the banality of everyday American life. Um, hey, look, getting back to the, the, the minute for, for a minute. Yeah, we can do that. As you can see, this is we're going exactly how these minutes go. They start at the minute, and then we branch off into the entire universe, and then we come back. So thank you yes. for thank you for bringing us back to the minute. No, no worries. No worries. <laughs> what I wanted to say is, um, in our chat before we we started recording, I mentioned that um, one of my little kind of rules, increasingly, uh, is that uh, you know within a minute of filmmaking, I want to see something. I want to see something. Okay vaguely interesting come from the filmmaker. And where a lot of films don't do this, I think, is in dialogue scenes, and, and, and we talked about that earlier. But I love the way that this dialogue scene is followed by an absolutely archetypal man image where you have that just exquisite composition of all of those um, verticals underneath the freeway. Yes. And, of course, the lens flare as the, as the, as the car comes out. As the car out. comes out. And I'm not a big scholar um, of man, but I, as far as I know, he was probably one of the earlier guys of the recent period to really start using a lot of lens flares and to make that a kind of a, a popular gesture, but also an acceptable gesture, right, within yes. a Hollywood film. Is that correct, do you think? Or? Yeah, I, I think I think you'd be spot on. But the thing is with man, he, again, it's that hyper obsession with authenticity. It makes perfect sense in this scene, in the even in the editing. It's like it's this perfect thing. We're seeing the light, you know, we're illuminating direction. The flare yeah. comes at us. We're immersed in this scene, like we're in like an antimatter space, and the car lighting up is like we're back to the world again. We're back to this, you know, um, physical industrial LA world that we've been seeing for you know the preceding sort of eighty odd minutes. And so he 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 has used them, but they're very sparing. They're like they're always around, you know, different parts of whatever story he's telling. So the most pronounced ones is there's like maybe one in Collateral, one or two, but it's all about. That be, you know, he's he's much yeah. more interested. Um, I'll, I'll get the precise phrase because Kyle, who's in the preceding episode to yourself, said this great said this great phrase. He he sort of the the digital artifice is what he becomes more obsessed with after yeah. heat. Yeah, and, yeah, and and yeah. and and Kyle called it Kyle Turner. That is, guys, if you want to follow Kyle on Twitter, it's at Kyle Kerner. It's a spoonerism of his name. He called it the crumbs of reality. And I just loved that turn of phrase, that sort of that sort of sandy, grainy, digital, um, and it's and it's almost like he's trying to affect that later tungsten light that we see 
mm. behind John Voight's character's head in a lot of his other night shooting that come with like yeah. Collateral, yeah. the night scenes in Ali, um, mm. and particularly Miami Vice. The whole of Miami usually is this sun-drenched, stylish yeah. um, business kind of a landscape, but in Man's World, it's this... Mm you know tungsten evening street lights you know car lights the the, the lights from your dashboard being able to sort of trick yeah. the light the, the the way that you're looking so yeah he's he's it's his man style is only it's like for character he's like that hyper obsessed method director like a method actor it's funny isn't it because i mean obviously guys like jj abrams were criticized a lot more recently for for turning lens flare into a fetish um signature uh and i think even he's toned it down subsequently in heat actually there's quite a lot not as much as abrams but there's more i think maybe than man's other films but it's always exquisite the way he uses it and that that shot that we're talking about there um it's just perfect because the We've seen this kind of fairly dimly lit scene in the car yes, and then yes. the, br- the brilliance of the lights. And then after a couple of seconds, it's like a kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like the light does something magical to the image, yes. you know. I mean, it's already brilliant, but then it's it literally transforms it into almost like a kaleidoscopic effect. Yes. We have these multiple colours, these kind of rainbow colours that just explode in the centre of uh, the image. And the architectural stuff there, um, you know, is just wonderful. I mean, this whole film is full of locations. We were talking earlier about his fetish for location work. Yes. So there's always like a double layering of space in these movies. Well, at least double anyway. Where you've got real <laughs> locations, which is fantastic. But then you've got the, the, the manizing of them. You know, you've got the, the, his particular very strict rules about palette, which in this film are, are reaching like you know, <laughs> of, of even his of, even his infrared camera, Hamish has to be infra blue. It cannot exactly. be infrared. That's how hyper obsessed he is. Exactly. Uh, so it's 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 as close to monochrome as you can get while technically being a color film. N- not in that sense of being, um, uh, you know, uh, almost the word I'm looking for. You know, fake black and white, but yes. just in, it's blue and black. It's a blue and black film. Yes. Uh, basically. And and I was also wondering, just on that, actually, whether this obsession in recent Hollywood or recent dish Hollywood towards teal, uh, and there's a lot of stuff online kind of bemoaning the fact, you know. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's all right. You're, you're, you're good. Oh, no, I, no, no, I'm, I'm good. Um, I'm just getting knocked on the door because I didn't realize that someone needs to come in here, so I've got to oh, get out in just a moment, but we can wrap up. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, this, this teal stuff, I mean, surely man played a part in that. Uh, ratcheting up this kind of... I, I think the stuff that Mann did physically with a director like a uh, director of photography like Dante Spinotti um, has just been tried to digitally been recreated. And him yeah. as like a digital pioneer and the palettes that he was creating, it's like, it's that, mm-hmm. it's, I think sometimes it's that sort of cheap stylization, like people just color correct for color correct sake. Like exactly. David, it's, exactly. it's, it's, I think, but, but I agree with you. There's these stylish directors that come out and that's the frustration, like you said earlier. There's like this center in a genre that seems, you know, a fairly uninteresting genre, a very two-dimensional genre. There's this center of these incredible films that are seminal, that are super influential, that people are always reaching for, and they just never quite touch them. And they just create cheap knockoffs over and over again. And you're like, God, this is so boring. I know, for sure. And this film, if anything, gets better. I mean, when I first saw it, when it came out, 
some of this stuff kind of skated over me, I think, and I was more concentrating on what I saw as the kind of over-determined, you know, Pacino, De Niro, finally <laughs> together, face-to-face, you know, and this whole kind of like, you know, um, uh, sort of, you know, just blowing up of that whole idea. But, I mean, yeah, that, that shot, that final shot at the end of the minute we're talking about, there's a three-dimensionality to it. It's like a 3D shot. You know, there's something incredibly tactile about the, the space and the and the pillars and, there, which is so typical of him. And choosing to start the car, the the, the dust flares. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I think adds to that brilliance. When you've got the texture of let's start it in the dirt and the kicking up of the dirt and then this three-dimensional space, and it's almost like the dust, as, that, as that's illuminated, you've got this sort of, oh. it almost feels like a cathedral-esque look yeah. um, oh. in, in, oh. That, in that moment. It's really, really beautifully staged. And Dante Spinotti is, a, you know, in two, two years later, he does one of my other favourite um, films in this genre, which is LA Confidential, which is, again, in a film that is exquisitely shot you know curtis hansen just you know as a period film looks so gorgeous you know regardless of whether you like the the tale but again spinotti as a cinematographer is just quite exquisite so those spaces are real but they turn into these kind of man spaces and also importantly most of them are unless you know la really well they're anonymous spaces you know that's kind of um spaces that Gilles Deleuze called, you know, anywhere, whatever spaces, you know, I mean, it's like under a freeway somewhere in the United States, we assume in in Los Angeles, right? Um, And then just super finally, I love the way that he lets the car actually leave the frame. Yes. You know, like we are left with the graceful movement and this kind of pregnant 3D, luminous, kaleidoscopic, thanks to the lens flare kind of image, which is like... That is where his cinema is truly formalist, I think. Yes. Um, Hamish Ford, thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. It has been an absolute blast. You're coming back. As I said, I make people promise they'll come back (laughs) on the show. Um, You're coming back. It's been an absolute pleasure to catch back up and talk. We could have talked for hours, but folks... Um, you can hear a morsel of what my thesis conversations were with Hamish um, and, and all the lovely uh, alleyways and directions he put me off. I super appreciate it. And I'm extremely thankful um, for Hamish, uh, his guidance and as a mentor. So thank you on the show uh, for as uh, as a tutor, as my teacher. Thank you. Um, <laughs> You're most welcome, Blake. It was always a pleasure and, and, and it has been again. It's, it's a wonderful project. So thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you to Garth Franklin for our web design, Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme. Thank you to Mr. Hamish Ford once again. And um, for you guys who are listening, uh, there'll be another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner.